Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It's our second to last show and the last one featuring guests live and recorded. Next week, it'll be just you and me for a couple hours just talking about metal and my journey through it in the show. So I hope you join me for our final live program. Uh, you know, it's funny because I had an opportunity to interview a couple of artists this week that I really wanted to interview, but I have no way of getting them up before, you know, next week. And I don't want to start putting interviews up the week after I end the show. People are like, I thought the end of the show, why are there still interviews going up there? But we will be talking to artists when they have records out or the promoter some. We will be putting them up on the website. They'll just all be pre-recorded when I have the time out there. But there won't be any more live shows. This will be the next to the last one. Next week, we wrap it up. Right there, Blessed Death, Omen of Fate, off that first record, that killer record, Kill or Be Killed, from going back to the 80s. We'll be playing some more Blessed Death for everybody next week. All right, we're going to keep the music flowing here tonight, but we got interviews with Steve Mann from Lionheart, Thomas Youngblood from Camelot, and Ian Gregg from Torch. Uh, the Steve Mann interview we did earlier, that was pre-recorded. We had a lot of trouble with the Skype. Uh, so for the first five or six minutes of the interview, we kept losing each other. So, But after that, it picked up. We got better sound quality and everything was okay. But uh, there's a couple of times where we get cut off. But I just cut out the dead air and went right back into the interview again. So uh, just bear with that one for the first few minutes, and then it'll get better. As good as it can get on this show. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to the music here. Steal it. No way out.
who I sat in trial by fire. That album is a masterpiece. I play that record start to finish on a regular basis. Caught in the act going way back in the day. I never got to see Satan live in the 80s because really that lineup didn't exist very long. They put the record out. They broke up. Michael Jackson became the singer of the band. They had a couple of other albums or EPs out. Then they broke up again. But when they reunited, we were lucky because they came to America. I want to say it was maybe five or six years ago. They played this place called the Black Bear in, in Brooklyn. A nice size uh, club and they packed it in. And boy, I tell you, you know, when they came on, the place just got jammed in. People were standing there, you know, and the band's up on stage getting ready to start, you know, waiting for the intro. And, you know, Brian Ross is right in the audience, like, waiting for, like, his cue to come up on stage. And he's standing in the middle of the crowd, and not one person noticed him except for me, standing there. You would think, like, you know, if you're such fans of the band, you would see him standing there in the audience. I guess maybe they were so fixated on the stage. So I shook his hands to hello because we had just done an interview, I think the week before that, for the show. And they went up on stage and they blew the place away. I mean, this band sounds live the way they sound on record. Uh, Brian has lost nothing in his vocal performance. The rest of the band was spot on. And after the show, they came out to the audience and they hung out with everybody talking, you know, signing autographs, taking pictures, a bunch of great guys. You know, they've been here, I think, one or two more times since then. So it's been really good with them. But let's get some torch going right now and we'll get the interview with Ian Greg on right after the song, Fire Razor. <laughs> Oh, perfect. That's beautiful. Thanks. Good. <laughs> How are you, my friend? 
I'm good. I'm excellent, actually. And you? I'm happy because you guys probably put out one of the best records of 2020. Reignited oh, okay. is amazing. Oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I know there's been a lot of work going into this record. You've worked on it for a very long time. Now that you have the finished product and you, and you listen back to it now, is it everything you were hoping it would be when you got started on it? Yeah, actually, it's, it kind of exceeded our expectations because uh, we didn't really know what where it was heading. But now that we have the final results, we're we're really really happy. Yeah, it, it does sound amazing, and it sounds like classic Torch. I mean. Were any of these songs or any of these riffs things that were left over from back in the 80s that you never got around to recording or putting it out, or is it all brand new writing material? It's actually all brand new, but the, the writing's been going on for, for quite a while. So let's say we've since uh, 2013 or something like that, 2014, so we've taken a while. But it's all, all brand new. Yeah. Was there a conscious effort to try to, you know, keep that sound from you. I mean, 30 years have passed, more than that, since the last record. So a lot yeah. changes musically, you know, the way you're influenced, the things you listen to. Was it difficult trying to, you know, come back to that original Torch sound? Uh, not, not not, really. I mean, if you look at our influences, and I mean, the influences are more or less the same that were back in, back in the 80s, so not, not much has changed there. And also, it's, it's uh, kind of fascinating because um, when you come up with something and you don't don't know whether it's um, whether it's torture or not, as soon as you you know show the group, show the band, and they start adding their their ideas to it, and all of a sudden it sounds like like torch. True. I mean, did it help that you pretty much have almost the entire classic lineup of the band together? Also. Yes, def definitely. That has to be a big thing because everybody sort of knows their place in the band and what you know has to be done to make the band you know what it is. Yeah, absolutely, and and also I mean we're still the same persons basically as we were back in the eighties. So, somewhat older, somewhat heavier, but still <laughs> still the same guys. <laughs> I can imagine. You, you know, people don't realize it, but the band has been around in one form or another, whether it was Black Widow or Torch, since seventy nine or eighty. Now, when people yep. think back that far, I mean, being in Sweden on top of that, no internet, I mean, people just reflect on the new wave of British heavy metal going on in the UK, and then, the, you know, the hard rock scene coming out of the USA at that time. You guys were doing this simultaneously as that was happening, not having any idea what was going on probably in the rest of the world, because we didn't have that kind of communication back then. Absolutely. I mean... We had no clue what what was going going on, so, so we didn't know. It's it's just you know, lately that we've understood a lot of people were actually listening to our music, and I, I remember, uh, so Klaus uh, when we broke up Torch, he moved to to the U.S. and then they released our albums on on CD, and uh, and he went into Tower Records, and all of a sudden he saw all, all of these Torch CDs everywhere, and he didn't we didn't we didn't have a clue that anyone in the U.S. was actually listening to our music, so so it's a big difference nowadays. True, you didn't know where your music was being heard back then, you know, unless people wrote letters to the band. Uh, you know, so when the first record comes out, I mean, you go back to the EP in 1982, so early yeah. on in, in the heavy metal scene, and you guys were really doing something different that nobody else was doing. Did you, yeah. When you look back now, do you feel like maybe you didn't get the credit you deserve for creating a sound that really wasn't 
happening at the time? I mean, it's uh, it would have been nice to to get more credit for it, but uh, still, I mean, I, th- I think it's great that we that we were part of the basically bu- building Swedish heavy metal to where it is today. Because today, I mean, Sweden is a very recognized com- uh, country when it comes to heavy metal, and uh, I think we can take some credit for for starting that whole wave. So that that's good. True. It's funny when you look at it today because the countries that didn't get the recognition they deserved back then are the ones kind of leading, you know, the hard rock and heavy metal scene today and the ones that everybody everybody wanted to break big in the USA or in the UK. Those countries yeah. have fallen behind, like in their dedication to the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, it's it's probably because I mean uh, we've been our countries have been trying for so hard for so long so you get you get very dedicated to it so it's it's not it's not like a fashion it's not something that you change overnight i mean we stick to it true when the ep comes out and then the first full length record uh, about 2 years later you're on tandem records was that your own label at the time or was it a local label because i think you were the only band on that label yeah, it was a lo- local label. Um, they they had a couple of other bands. Probably the most well-known band, apart from us, uh, was a, a band called Easy Action, yeah. more like a glam band, and they were later signed to to Atlantic Records. But it was a small label. Yeah, when the first full run comes out, when Torch comes out in 1983, where was the band at at this point in time? I mean, did you feel like you had a shot of breaking and making it, or did you kind of feel because you know you were isolated in Sweden that might not happen for the band at the time? I think, uh, of course, we were hoping to to make it, but it, but if you look at it, uh, really, no Swedish band had really made it big at, at that point in time. So I thought it's okay. I mean, it's it's more or less in, impossible to, to achieve it. So we were really happy to see you know, what, what was going on and, and, uh, and, the, and the progress we were making and uh, all that. But uh, we didn't have any real expectations to make it big at that point in time. And also, as I said, I mean, the whole market was dominated by, by the UK and, and the USA at that point in time. True. But you had a lot of output. When you think about it, 82, 83, then Electric Kiss in 84, you know, you had yeah. album year after year after year, one better than the next. I mean, so musically, you guys were right there. Yeah, absolutely. Even though you uh, would say that Electric Kiss, we, that was a little bit of a rush job. So we we, we were kind of struggling to, to get all the, all the songs together that, that we needed. Do you feel differently about that record today? I, mean, I guess you guys really weren't happy with the record when it came out because of, you know, the time you had to spend on it. Yeah, I, I can. I mean, um, it, it's funny because uh, when you look back at your your own old records, um, uh, you always find, seem to find the faults within them. So you, you don't really like the sound. You don't like how you're playing. You don't like the cover. As time goes by, so uh, th- that changes. So, th- so the first album we released, uh, I'm really happy with now. Even even the cover, though we didn't like the cover at that point in time. Electric Kiss, I must say, uh, I'm not at that point really. At the, probably part of it is is because of the sound. You know, at that point in time, everything was supposed to sound very big. So lot, lots of reverbs. It's very 80s sounding, and it's it hasn't really stood the test of time, so to speak. 
Yeah, but you actually felt that way, you know, when the record came out in 1984. This is something that kind of, you know, you decided years later that you didn't like the way it sounded. You felt that way from the very beginning. Was there anything that could have been done to correct it, or was it a just a money issue at the time and a time a time sensitive type of thing? No, and the the reason it sounds is because we, like everyone else, was uh, we were really impressed by you know this big stadium sound. So. I remember listening to to the first Icon record, and we went, "Oh, we want to sound big." So that's so we we tried to achieve that, but we really didn't succeed. Do you think maybe you set your expectations too high because you expected it to sound that way, and that maybe makes you look at it differently? Because as a fan, when the record came out in '84 and I picked it up, I you know I fell in love with it like the records before it, and I didn't think any different because I guess I didn't know you were looking for a certain sound at that time. To me, it was Torch. Yeah, probably yes. I mean, and also, I mean, at that point in time, we were supposed to start recording Electric Kiss. There were also talks about bringing in like a big name producer, but that that fell through. So I think we were a little bit, let's say, disillusioned when we recorded Electric Kiss. So it didn't really turn out the way we wanted to. Was there an attempt after that to record another record? Because I think maybe it was a year or two after that that the band actually officially broke up. I uh, no 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 real uh, effort to to make. Uh, I mean, we we continued writing songs, but uh, at that point in time, uh, we we were a little bit fed up with, with not with with uh, with the band or the personalities. We were still friends, but with the whole music scene or the music industry. So we, we did, uh, we did uh, write a couple of new songs, but we never recorded them. Wow. So, I mean, I, was it the album that, was it the Electric Kiss record that was sort of the beginning of the end of the band? Did that kind of set the tone for the way things were going? And, and you know, everybody always wants to think that band members don't get along, they fight, they're, they're going at it. But most of the time it's, the entire business model that breaks up a band, whether it's management, record labels, or just the business in general, that causes the end of more bands, I think, than personal relationships. Yeah. No, I I, I think uh, I think Electric Kiss was was the beginning of, of, of the end, and, and also uh, the challenge, as you said, about the, the business model. So the so simple fact that uh, like we didn't have a manager, so all of a sudden there were lots and lots of things. That you needed to do outside of making music and uh, and playing music, and it got to the point that 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 really took over, and uh, so so basically the, the fun of playing went went out of it, and and that's really the reason we we broke up. Yeah, was there ever any talk of maybe relocating the band to an area where it was more accessible, like music wise, or was that not even an option for the band? No, I mean, we had we had some some talks about that, but um, not, nothing nothing really serious, I would say. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, as the years go by, was there ever any attempt to put the band back together again uh, between the original lineup? I, I think that the first, uh, and it's kind of funny because uh, again, we were still friends, we we still hung out, but we really didn't discuss uh, reuniting. So the first attempt was the Dan Docks in I believe it was two, 2008 to 2009, 
uh, and, they, and he really wanted to to put the band together again. But at that point in time, we weren't really ready, and that's uh, so he, he he got a couple of other members, other musicians to to play with him, and also, that's also when they uh, released uh, the Dark Sinner album, which is basically uh, a bunch a bunch of songs that's been re-recorded and, and two new new ones. Yeah, I remember that record. I mean, how did you feel about that when it came out at the time? Because to me, Torch is a certain lineup. It's a certain band. And as a fan, that's the lineup I want to hear and see because that's what created the original music. How did you feel about the re-recorded versions of the songs that you were a part of, you know, originally? Uh, to be to be brutally honest, uh, we weren't too happy with it. And um, I mean, not the fact that they re-recorded and, and really not the way it sounds. So, but um, I don't know. I have I've hardly listened to it. So. Yeah, well, I, I guess years go by after this, and now it's time for you guys to actually, you know, put this back together the right way, the real way it should have been done. I mean, yeah. so what, what made that actually finally happen? Was it just the the right moment in time for everybody to do it? It's uh, and that's kind of funny because it was more or less by by accident. So, in 2012, I turned 50, and I was. Um, Throwing a party, I was supposed to play some cover songs together with Chris and Steve, and also uh, Chris's wife, uh, Suzanne, who used to be uh, in a band called Crystal Pride. And then uh, one one of the guests at the party uh, would, was supposed to be Dan. We said, well, he's here, so it's like four-fifths of, of Torch. Why don't we do a couple of Torch songs? And and it came down and we rehearsed I think one time and and all of a sudden you felt that the spark was there, so then then we played at my party and everyone thought it was a great time time and then we were approached by by a company that organizes rock cruises between Sweden and Finland, and they said why don't you re, re, reunite we'd like to have you on, on the cruise and I thought yeah why not so that that's when it really happened. Wow. The first time everybody's back into the studio rehearsing together, was it difficult trying to remember how to play all the songs? Were there parts of songs that you just couldn't remember how they went? Yes. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. And it, it's kind of embarrassing when you need to start learning your own songs. So what, what did we do there? What, what, what actually happened there? So, yeah. No, I know. I say that because I was in a, in a band myself in the '80s, and I, and I picked up my, my bass on that one. I was like, "How did that song go?" I like, I, I wrote it. I can't even remember it. it. You know, time really does take a toll on us. It does. It does. So I mean, so how do you actually go back to remembering these songs? You go back and listen to the records. You try to remember the fingering of the chords, or does one member say, "Hey, I remember." Yeah, so it's it's a combination. So you you go back and you try to listen to it and, and try to make out, and then then someone man, remembers. No, it goes actually goes like this. And go, yeah, that's it, that's it. <laughs> it's incredible. But you know, go, to, talking about reignited. I mean, I listen to these songs like from Knuckle Duster to Cradle to Grave, and it just seems like you know you didn't miss a beat. Like like this should have been the follow up to the last you know studio record the band put out. It's like. No time has passed. That's pretty impressive, you know, for a band to be able to recreate that sound. You know, the songs are catchy, the vocals are there, the bass, the guitar, everything is right where it's supposed to be. I mean, did it come together naturally? It was like you said, because you've been working on these songs for seven or eight years now, or was it just all that time that you put into it that made it happen the way it was? 
I think uh, I think it was the fact that we spent so much time on it because uh, it, it gave us an opportunity to um, to you know listen to, to to songs and to reject songs. Of course, there's many more songs that we've uh, written that didn't make it to to the album, but but we're always intent on intent on uh, this should really be the album so there's there's no room for failure so every, every song needs to be able to stand stand on its own and and it's it's taken a while but definitely if you look at the result it's uh, i think it's worth was worth it true when, when you say you have a lot of songs cause a lot of bands say you know we went to go record this new record and you know we have 10 songs on the album but we really wrote about 20. how do you pick and choose like which ones are fillers and which ones are the ones that should go i mean because if you wrote the song, I would think it has something to it that meant something to you. But when do you say, yeah. well, this really isn't right for us right now, but maybe we can come back to that later on? Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's usually, I mean, you, you try out the song in, in, in the rehearsal room, and when, when you tried it a couple of times, if if the, if it doesn't have the right vibe, then then it's probably not, not right. I mean... You you learn that as well. I mean, if it doesn't feel right at a certain point in time, then then it's not going to make it, or you you're going to have to rework it quite dramatically. But certain things you you feel instantly. Well, yeah, this sounds good. We just need to change change it a little, little bit, and it will be good. But if it doesn't have that vibe, then then it won't make it. True. The new records out on Metalville, a, a great label that really supports this artist and you know pushes for the music to be out there for people to hear. I mean, how yeah. important is it today for the band to be signed to a label? Because you know the record companies don't have the power and the control over bands like they used to in the '80s. It's a whole different business model today. So, does the label really offer you something that you couldn't do if you did it on your own today? I, I would say, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree. I mean, if you compare to the 80s, then, then it was all down to, to having the, the right label, having the support from, from the label. Today today it's a, a different situation. And uh, we, we were actually discussing whether we should, you know, create our own record label and, and do it. But, uh, but what... Um, someone or a label like metal what they offer you is of course all the pr capacities so i mean you can there's no way you can do it on your own which means that you would anyway have to bring bring in uh, someone from the outside to help you out with with the with the pr and uh, and there are lot, lots of other things that that they do so it's it's different but i still think if if you find the right label then i th- definitely think it's it's a good good thing to have and and so far i think metal wheel has done an excellent job yeah they have they do with all their artists so i'm happy that you guys signed with them and that you know this album is going to see a big release and you know, get yeah. back to it i mean about a month ago dan dark made it sound like he was out of torch again i don't know if he was just ranting and upset about something or if he's back in the band or, but he sounded like he wasn't happy about something going on is everything okay right now Everything's okay right Good. now. Um, in all honesty, Dan had some um, some personal uh, issues or, or challenges, and some of it he took out on the rest of the band. But now everything's okay. Ah, uh, that's good to know because this is the lineup that I want to see going on and on. And I'm hoping that you guys work on another record. I hope it don't take seven or eight more years. I hope you know maybe next year, the year after that, we'll have another torch record out. No, I think um, it's it's not going to take thirty six years. <laughs> no, but, but 
No, but I mean, just just as everyone else now that we that we've been hit by Corona, we means that uh, you have you have time to to start uh, writing and start recording. So actually, we do have. I think we have about ten ten new songs, and a couple of them we already recorded. So it won't take that long next time around. Oh, that's great. I mean, how's everything by you with this whole coronavirus thing? I mean, are there, are there clubs open or places for bands to play right now, or is it still kind of in lockdown, like over here in the U.S.? It's, um, I mean, so everyone seems to think that Sweden, that, you know, we're going about just as before the corona, but that, that's that's not true. So when it comes to playing, so there, there's a maximum capacity of, of 50 people when, when you do a concert. So it's seriously limited. Yeah, that's not a lot. That's I mean, over here we have nothing. They won't even allow them to open up. So we have no live music at all. It's, it's horrible. So, I mean, I'm hoping that changes soon. But do you think you're going to be able to get out there and do any performances to support the new record this year? Or is it something that might be put on hold to 2021? No, I mean, so so you have, you have to you know you have to accept what what it's like. So so actually, what we're doing next is that on October the ninth, we're playing in a small club. It's a, it's an old cinema, and we're actually doing a live stream of that. So if you go into liveandstream.se, you can you can find us there. So we we do that and then we'll do another gig at the same place the day after. And as as said, you know, there would, you can only be 50 people. So I think that the tickets for the first show sold out in 30 minutes and the second one in 28 minutes. So. Wow, that's yeah. right. it. Must make you feel good that after all these years with a new record, people are still really so into torture, so interested in the band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're overwhelmed. I mean, the, the reactions we had so far, it's it's just amazing. Uh, I'm happy for you, my friend. Ian, I'm not going to keep you, but you did such an amazing job on this record. I believe the official release date is September 25th on Metalville. Uh, everybody should buy this record because it's going to go to the top of the list for 2020. You did a great okay. job, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank keep, you. Keep it up, and I'm hoping to talk to you real soon again with the next record. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Have a great day, my friend. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Torch with Fire Razor. I love this band, and I love that new record they put out. That was in the dead of night from Reignited. Pick it up on Metalville Records. We're going to keep the music flowing here tonight. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, right before Frankie Benali from Choir Eye passed away, <clears throat> excuse me, I read that he had had a stroke, and I, you could kind of tell the writing was on the wall for him health-wise, you know, uh, with the battle and everything he was going through. And I was getting ready to say that. I wonder how long it'll be before, after he passes away, they say the band is going to continue. Um, and then our guest had called in, and we never got around to it. Well, it didn't take more than 30 days because they just announced that Quiet Riot is going to continue with no original members at all. Even even Frankie, God bless him, God rest his soul, he was not an original member. He was part of the classic you know, lineup from the early 80s, but he wasn't even an original member of the band. You know, the band should have been put to rest when Kevin died. Uh, but Frankie decided years later he wanted to start it up again, and I paid no mind to it, and I could really care less. But now with him gone, and they're like, oh, well, you know, Chuck Wright played on my, uh, Metal Health on the record. Chuck Wright played on one song on the album. He, you know, he's the least common denominator in that band because no matter what he says and does, he's in the band, he's out of the band, he's in the band, he's out of the band. Just watch the documentary. This band should have died with Frankie. I hate to say it that way, but this band should have ended when he passed away. They're going to keep it going, and... You know, then they have a blathermouth article about it. Then there's a follow-up article where they're saying, you know, we made the right decision because our fans are, your fans my ass. These are Facebook friends that are commenting on your Facebook post. These aren't fans, they're followers. They go on there and they'll tell you anything you want to hear to make you happy because they can't upset, you know, the rock star. You know, so they'll say anything that you, you want to hear. They'll never say, no, you should, only one guy, I think, in the entire thread said, no, it should have died with Frankie, you should end it. He was the only one. This band should be over. I mean, shame on anybody who pays a dollar to go see this band performing because there's nobody in the band with any link to the songs that they're playing live. Nobody. They're a cover band. They're an absolute cover band. They're, they're an actual cover band. Yeah, I don't get it. And any venue that books this band, shame on them too. You're booking a band that has no original members. Do these venues even pay attention? This is, you know, things like this kind of killed metal the first time around in the late 80s. The hair metal thing got a little ridiculous, and grunge came in, and people just went, you know, gravitated towards that. And metal died a horrible death back then because of what was going on. And I think the same thing is going to happen now because the diehards like myself are going to get sick and tired of all these bands that have no link to any originality, any original members. Alex Ross has Hooker and Blow going. He could put up another band. The other guys could join him in that. I mean... This should not go on. And shame on any venue that books this band. I know they actually got booked a couple of shows. I don't know if they were booked when Frankie was still alive and they're honoring these bookings or if these were fresh ones. I have no idea. Shame on anybody who goes to see Quiet Right Live. That's all I can say. They're a cover band, if even that. All right, enough about that. <laughs> Let's get back to the music here. Hey, you know, Thrust put out a brand new record. How about we play something off that album? Then we'll get into a couple of classics. And then after that, we'll speak to Thomas Youngblood from Camelot. Here's Blood in the Sky, brand new thrust.
That was Boss Tweed, Jacuzzi Murder. I remember trading for that demo tape. Uh, had to be 1984. I think it came out the year before that in 83. Uh, and I fell in love with those guys, man. I thought they were so great. I believe, I know they were from Texas. I'm not really sure where. I want to say Fort Worth, uh, maybe up in the Dallas area. But they were a pretty good band. Actually formed in the late 70s. They had a completely different lineup by the time this came out. I think only the bass player uh, back then was the original member. And it was a whole new lineup around 81, 82. Uh, and they had an album uh, called uh, Year Zero in 84 which I can never find in any local record store. I know it was an independent record, but back then you could get a lot of these things in your local record store. You know, It was actually easy to get imported records from overseas sometimes, and bands would put out records independently from your own country in the 80s. Uh, but I can never find that record, the original album from 84 back in the day, and I you know, just forgot about it and let it go. But in 2011, I believe, I believe Stormbringer put out Die You Bitch, which was a compilation record of all those earlier things. Even that record I don't have. And that one kind of got by me, too. A lot, a lot going on that year, I guess. All right. We're going to get to an interview with Thomas Youngblood from Camelot in about two minutes. Let's play a little rat walking a dog, and we'll get Thomas on the line right after this. Hang on.
Boy, nothing like that classic ride off the first EP from way back in the day. All right, let's talk to Thomas from Camelot. Thomas, this is Mike. How are you? What's up, Mike? How's it going? How you doing today? Very good. How are you? Very good. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Been a big fan for many decades, and I have to tell you, after going through this DVD, I must have went through it about five or six times in the last few days. It's stunning to look at. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, uh, sorry I'm late, by the way. Uh, they had the schedule flipped, so I called the other guy, and then he's like, "Now I'm too." So, just so you know. <laughs> nah, no problem. What else do I have to do? <laughs> There's nowhere to go these days. There's nothing to do. <laughs> We're pretty much locked up still. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, man. So, so, like I was saying, I'm going through the D. I guess I've been watching too many YouTube videos over the years of concerts and people filming them on their cell phones because it was beautiful to see the way this was filmed. I mean, you know, it's like a movie. Never mind the music, which on its own is just a blessing in disguise, but the quality of the video is stunning. I mean, did you set out to do it this way? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, but we used a, uh, a director out of Belgium who had done the Aryan uh, DVD and. So he had a lot of experience too with that particular venue, and we just loved the angles that he picked, and the, you know the kind of the depth and colors, and um, so we thought, okay, this guy's definitely the right guy for the job. And then we did like some pre-production, some planning, and the rest was kind of just up to him, you know, to find the right angles. And when he did the editing, and I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I, I agree. Was, you know, everybody knows like a lot of live stuff isn't really live anymore these days because you can go into the studio and kind of tinker and doctor with it. Was this film start to finish the way that you know the show actually was that night? Yes, definitely. We didn't cut. The only thing we cut was like if there was like a long pause between a certain song. Um, but like for example, forever <laughs> it was almost like forever. It was like fifteen minutes, which is a normally a five minute song. So we. We had this mid part where we had the fan uh, sing along and it just kept going on and on. And, um, you know, some of the people were like, hey, we should probably cut this down. I'm like, no, this was the concert. Let's just put it on there. And, you know, if people want to fast forward through it, they can. But we pretty much everything that's on the on the Blu-ray is was the concert, you know. And I, I think even on the live CD, we probably kept – Ninety nine percent of the of the footage or the actual content of the concert. Wow, it is a great show, and it was nice to see. I know it was filmed like two years ago, so I mean there was a lot of work behind the scenes over the last years trying to get this video ready and get it out. Yeah, I mean basically we didn't feel any rush whatsoever. The the last DVD was in two thousand seven, so my mindset was okay. Let's just take our time and and do this slowly it's got it has to t uh, stand the test of time regardless if it comes out a year later or two years later or three years later um so that was my philosophy and um you know we, we actually had just started the tour cycle so my first priority wasn't jumping on getting this dvd done it was like you know doing the tour and um and then you know when we decided to release it the you know this at this time this year we didn't we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic, so the timing actually couldn't have been better to release this. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess the way, however you look at it, you know. Yeah, true. Well, one thing about Camelot, I mean, since the beginning, there's never been any, like, you know, delaying getting any product out to anybody. I mean, you were putting out an album a year practically almost in the 90s, and we really never go more than two, sometimes maybe three years between records. So there's always constant output by the band. 
So I, you know, I can see, you know, it seems like there's no rush to get it out, but really there's always a lot of output by the band for fans to, to get into. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we knew it was going to come out this year, but a lot of, a lot of times people will do a DVD and they'll, or they'll shoot the concert. And then like six months later, they release it. Um, so like you said, it's been almost two years since we actually did this show, but it was part of the shadow theory tour. And I just didn't feel, I mean, I, I think at this point in my career, I just don't feel the need to rush anything. I just want to do things on my own time and do them right. And I'm glad we did that with this because the, to me, the, the out, the outcome was uh, worth the wait, you know. True. Uh, I, mean, I think it was around 90, 91, maybe, I, I got a demo by you guys with uh, Crossing Two Rivers <laughs> and Birth of a Hero and Warbird. And I was like, wow, wow. because, you know, 91, you know, metal is still big. You know, Metallica's about to release the Black Album, which kind of exploded. But then, like, within, like, a year of that, you know, metal was kind of on the outs. Nobody wanted nothing to do with it anymore. It was getting harder for bands to survive and make it. And you guys come out, and it's like a whole new thing. I mean, you took what was old, you took what was new, you mixed a whole bunch of things together that I don't think anybody was even contemplating or thinking about at the time. And you managed to survive. But was it hard in the 90s trying to keep Camelot going? You know, for me back then, it was more of a hobby. I had a, like a regular job back then. And I did Camelot sort of for fun. And then, um, you know, we spent a ton of time working on those demos at Morrison Studios in Tampa and spent a lot of money. And we just wanted to make sure that that first impression was, was you know, worth it when we sent the, the demo out. And um, luckily, uh, Noise Records, uh, the owner was walking through the, the office and heard somebody playing it at their at their desk. And he's like, okay, sign these guys. And, um, wow. I don't even think he knew we were from the U.S. I think he might have thought we were from Europe somewhere. But, um, you know, I, I, it's cool that you say that because, you know, we back then we were thinking to try to do things slightly different, not so much like bands that we loved growing up, you know, like Sabotage and Crimson Glory. We, of course, there's influences from those bands, but we wanted to do something, you know, slightly different. And I think, uh, you know, when you listen to those first demos or first records, you can – here, Camelot. Obviously, things have changed a lot over the years, but there is some, still some of that uh, DNA in the in those first demos. Yeah, I mean, when you started, like you said, it was a hobby in the beginning. But even when you started it out, I mean, anytime you create something different, and, and to me, the sound that Camelot created, a lot of people say, is that European symphonic metal sound. But I think that came after you guys, in my opinion. I think you know, you guys were way ahead of the curve in what you were doing. But you sit there and say, you know, how can we make this different? How can we make ourselves stand out? Or is it just something that you feel inside when you write music and it just it just comes out of you that way? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like we're going to, hey, we have to do something different. And we just felt like when we were stuff up and when I was doing riffs or something, I felt like they were slightly different. You know, I mean, I, we weren't trying to recreate the wheel or anything. So I think it was just kind of, you know, luck in a way, um, just like, you know, the, the owner of Noise Records walking through the, the office and just hearing the demo because who knows if he never heard it but we would have got signed by them but um you know and then at some point of course camelot got to a point where i had to you know tell my myself okay am i going to do this full time or or am i going to do this as a hobby and uh that was around the time of the fourth legacy where i was like okay i'm going to go full full in on this and and i did that i quit my job i sold everything i owned and never looked back and i'm, and I'm so glad i did that it was a hard decision to make back then because, you know, you have the comfort of a job and the uncertainty of a music business at that time that was kind of 
topsy turvy in the '90s, going upside down. You know, the downloading has started. Record labels were losing, you know, some control over the product mm-hmm. and how to get it out there. So, was it something that you really had to think about, or you just feel like, you know, this was the time? To, you know, because a lot of people today they can't commit to bands anymore. I mean, they get involved in it, and then they realize how much it takes to be a part of a band and to keep this thing going. That they just they back out after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure you I know mean, that. But I, I yeah, but I mean, like I said, I basically. You know, the the hardest part for anybody is, is is having to take care of their bills when they're doing something like that. So I sold everything that I owned, and I paid off all my debt and like, streamed my lifestyle down to zero, you know. I, I moved in with my girlfriend, and who's my wife now, and I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go for this. And, um, you know, if, if, if it didn't work out, I guess I could have gone back to the same industry that I was in. But, um you know, for me at the time, it was the right decision, and I, I wasn't happy doing what I was doing, so I just went for it. You know? Over the course of thirty-something years, the band's gone through three, you know, through three different singers. But it always seems to me like, you know, when you replace the lead singer, that's a very hard thing to do. I made it, made it work. You know, ACDC made it work. A lot of bands weren't able to do that. But I feel like with Camelot, it doesn't really matter who's fronting the band because I think that the music and the, the concept and the image of the the band is just bigger than one individual person fronting it. I mean, do you feel that way, that no matter who you put in there, it can make it work if they have the right sound and vibe that fits in with everybody else? Um, no, I think it, it obviously you have to pick the right person, whether it's the singer or the drummer or whoever. I mean, I understand what you mean, and I, and I appreciate that. And I think whoever, we, you know, the people that we brought into the band also understand there's a certain sound to Camelot that they respect and that they understand i think that you if you pick the right people it it totally works you know and tommy is like also an amazing singer amazing songwriter now with us and um so he was like the the perfect guy i think you know they, there was obviously other people that we auditioned but i don't think it would be the same without uh if we didn't have tommy as the guy that we have now you know that we, we've had in the band eight nine years now yeah, I remember Tommy's band Seventh Wonder. He, he was an amazing vocalist when he was fronting that band. So, like when, you, when I heard that you guys were going to join up with uh, Camelot, I was more than happy because I knew he would be great at that job and fill in that spot. Uh, you, so, when you're looking for somebody else to come into the band, is there like a preset of things that you want them to know? Like I said, is it just this is Camelot? You kind of have to fit into what we are, or do you let them come in and experiment a little bit and kind of bring in their sound and style to what Camelot is and adapt mm-hmm. it to the band? No, I mean, I think uh, we wanted to make sure that the, the, it stayed Camelot, that the DNA was there, that the basic uh, songwriting approach and style was there. But, of course, you know, a, a guy like Tommy who's got such a unique voice is going to bring his own flair and, and input to it. And he's been able to do that and like spent eight, nine years now. And and also, whenever there's been any change in, in Camelot, I've always looked at it as an opportunity to grow the band, not as a crisis, so to speak, you know. Um, and I think that's the right way to approach change, whatever it might be, whether it's replacing somebody in your group or whatever you might be doing, like moving to another city. Look, think about it as an opportunity to grow or, you know, to, to at least uh, have something new and fresh true i mean really when you think about it the band truly is an international band these days even though you're an american band technically 
you have members from all over the world that are playing in the band. Does that make it more difficult because you just aren't together all the time? But I know today with the internet and social media and you know all this technology, it, it kind of makes it a little easier for bands. Yeah, I mean honestly, you know, I, my old, the old drummer Casey Grillo, is a good friend of mine, he lives in the same town. We hardly ever see each other, so uh, it really doesn't matter. I think having uh, three out of the four, uh, three out of the five members be from Europe. I think it's cool. I mean, it gives the band a little bit of different uh, flair and their input and and songwriting is a little bit different now. So I lo- I love it. I, I wouldn't. I don't think um, I would want to change that at all. It's, it's, and it's really not yeah. that inconvenient. The, the DVD was recorded in the Netherlands. I think the first one, the one called What This Night, was in Norway, if I remember. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was 15, 16 years ago <laughs> in Norway. Uh, is there is there a certain place you record like the live or the DVDs? Was there a reason for that one particular show that you decided to pick it for? Well, that venue is pretty pretty famous in Europe. It's a, it's a fantastic venue for sound and lights and the production, but the last 10 years in, in the Netherlands, um, we, we, every show has been sold out, you know, from started out at like three or 400 people and then, you know, up to 4,000 people. So we felt like it was an obligation to those fans to, to do the DVD there. Um, it was kind of a similar approach with Norway when, when we did it in 2007. Do you see things here in America getting any better? I mean, I used to go to a lot of shows before we got, kind of got locked down and, in March, and mm-hmm. I was starting to see a decline in the audiences again. You know, I don't know if it's maybe because the show's a midweek or it's not the right mix of bands playing, but I had things seem to be on the downturn here again in the U.S. as far as live going to live shows. I have to be honest with you. I felt like the over the past four to five years that the crowds have grown for Camelot. Um, I think the weekday thing is definitely different in the U.S. and Europe. I mean, a lot of people that just they either with their job or school that they just don't want to go to shows during the weekday. So that is true. But in general, you know, I've seen for Camelot the the fan base and the crowds getting bigger for us in the U.S., which uh, is pretty awesome because obviously we would love to to play big shows here, and uh, so. I don't know. I think for us, it, it doesn't seem that that it's decreasing. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess we're I guess we're fortunate in that aspect. Well, that's a great thing. I, I heard that wrestling with it. You, you actually have all the new songs ready for the next record, which I'm guessing would be probably next year. Is that true? We have all the songs ready in demo form. Now we got to start kind of working out the details and putting vocals to it and lyrics and. Um, yeah, so we're hoping for like a mid-2021 release uh, for the next record. We'll probably do like a fall European tour and then come back to the States in the spring of 2022, something like that. Yeah, it must be difficult. Like I said, because you have members in different parts of the world and everybody's in, you know, with this coronavirus, everybody's got different rules that they got to follow and quarantines. So it'll probably make it extremely difficult right now for anybody to get together to do anything, especially as far as doing shows, even mm-hmm. if there were any. I'm, I know they're playing more in Europe than they are here in the U.S. right now, but it has to be difficult with all the restrictions. Yeah, it is difficult. Like we, technically, we, you know, we can't really go to Europe right now. Um, we're they're not allowing allowing Mar- Americans in the in the in the country. Like we want to go to Germany, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean. Uh, my hope is that maybe by uh, December, 
I'll be able to fly to Germany and, and, and work with Sasha and sit down and go over the final stuff on the on the record, do the do all the guitars over there or do them here partially and over there. So um we'll see. Let's uh let's see what happens. But I think uh worst case scenario is we just do all our parts at home, which we can we can totally do as well. True, that technology is there today. Hey, Thomas, I'm not going to keep yeah. you. I know you have a whole bunch of these things to do today, and people are going to ask you the same questions <laughs> over and over again for the next eight hours. So I'll give you a little break. No, it's all good, now. man. But, Thank you. But I tell you, I love the DVD, and I can't wait for the new record to come out. I've been with you guys for 30 years, and I hope you can keep this thing going for another 30. I don't know if I'll be around, but you know, do your yeah, best. Yeah, me too. Thanks, brother. My son will take over from there, I guess. <laughs> you there? You take care, my son. Have a great day. All right, be, be good. Bye-bye. Tell me, tell me, God, what is left here for me? I'm a ghost in the window. Oh, God, set me free. And in twilight hours, I Never come
All right, Camelot in the twilight hours. Got one interview left with Steve Mann. We recorded this one earlier. Like I said, there was some trouble with the Skype for the first five or six minutes, so we were cutting in and out. So the interview kind of stops and starts, but then after that it picks up and the quality was pretty good. So uh, stay with us for a little while. We're going to play a few more songs right now, then get to that interview. Raven have a brand new record coming out called Metal City. We're going to get on a tune from that. We'll play some Target, some Lionheart, then we'll wrap things up with one more song tonight. So let me dig up a song off the new uh, Raven record for everybody. We'll play that. I don't know if anybody's gotten a good look at Mark Biederman from Blind Delusion lately, but I have to tell you, he's starting to look more and more like Papa John Phillips. Take a look at him with that hat on. <laughs> he always wears him the beard now. I swear to God, if I took a faster look, I would think it was uh, Papa John. All right, let me see here. How about we do... I don't know. I only, had, I only uploaded a couple of songs off this record. I thought I had a... Uh actually put up more than, than I realized. But all right, you know what? Let's do Top of the Mountain. Brand new Raven. Let me know what you think.
I target with Hordes of Insanity. We're going to play some brand new Lionheart, get to an interview with Steve Mann, play some more Lionheart, and then wrap up our next to last show tonight. All right, off the newest record, how about Five Tribes? Then we'll go right to the interview with Steve when we're done.
his interview with Steve Mann, like I said, the first five or six minutes were a little choppy because that bad reception, and we kind of get cut off quite a few times. But after that, it gets all right. So bear with it if you can. Steve, this is Mike. How are you? Uh, yeah, hello, Mike. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm glad we could connect today. I think we had a little issue with the time zones the last time. Yeah, it was an issue with something or other. But anyway, not to worry. At least we're we're we're, we're hooking up now. That's all that matters. Hey, listen, I have to tell you, I've been going with you guys for forty something years now. It's it's been an amazing ride, and I'm glad that wow. you know five or so years ago you put it back together. It was well worth the wait. Yes, we're we're very glad too. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, let's kind of go back to the beginning for people aren't familiar with the band. I mean, it goes back to around 1980. And, you know, most people don't really know about much before, like, you know, the Hot Tonight record came out in 84. But, you know, Lionheart was sort of a different band from 1980 to 1984. Uh-huh. Steve, it's Mike again. I think we lost each other. Yes, I think my internet dropped out here for some straight buzz occasionally. But uh, that's how big t- <laughs> it keeps going. How far did I get? Uh, you were talking about we were saying thought, how different the band was when it first started, and you were saying the band had gotten started with Dennis and uh, Jess, and then we got yeah. cut off. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. So, so basically, we, we um, did, did I get to the bit where I was saying that we were kind of influenced very much by bands like Foreigner and Toto and Journey and uh, Kansas and, and stuff like this, and we we realised that was a kind of common liking, common denominator between all of us, um, and that really influenced our sound over the, that first four years. So we started to incorporate the big uh, block vocal harmonies, uh, the guitar harmonies, um, and just that, you know, the whole, that the whole thing was based around great songs. Uh, and that's how our sound developed. And by the time we got to 1984 and we got the deal with CBS Records in America, um, oh, sorry, my phone's going, let me just close the door. Um, then we, uh, yeah, our sound really had kind of gone quite American. We we tried to keep a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal stuff there. Uh, so we kind of, the whole was a little bit of new wave with a lot of uh, American AOR influences to it as well. Yeah, well, you know, the music scene's always changing. You know, like it says, when the band first started uh-huh. out, the... Steve, it's Mike again. I think we lost each other. Yes, I think my internet dropped out here for some straight buzz occasionally, but uh, that's how big t- <laughs> it keeps going. How far did I get? I uh, you were talking about we were saying thought- how different the band was when it first started, and you were saying the band had gotten started with Dennis and uh, Jess, and then we got yeah. cut off. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. So, so basically, we, we um, did, did I get to the bit where I was saying that we were kind of influenced very much by bands like Foreigner and Toto and Journey and uh, Kansas and, and stuff like this, and we. We realised that was a kind of common liking, common denominator between all of us, um, and that really influenced our sound over the, that first four years. So we started to incorporate the big uh, block vocal harmonies, uh, the guitar harmonies, um, and just that you know the whole that the whole thing was based around great songs, uh, and that's how our sound developed. And by the time we got to 1984 and we got the deal with CBS Records in America. Um, Oh, sorry. my phone's going. Let me just close the door. Um, then we, uh, yeah, our sound really had kind of gone quite American. We we tried to keep a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal stuff there. Uh, so we kind of the whole was a little bit of new wave with 
a lot of uh, American AOR influences to it as well. Yeah, well, you know, the music scene's always changing. You know, like you said, when the band first started out, the new wave of British heavy metal was just starting to take off and explode. And, you know, it really wasn't even known as that back then, but it became known as that later on. And, you know, you had yeah. the AOR stuff going on here in America. And then, you know, the hard rock came in. Then, you know, the heavy metal came in. Did you ever feel like you were, like, being thrown into a lot of different directions from maybe within the band itself and, you know, from management and from record labels where – Everybody wanted to kind of go with what was a flavor, I guess, at the time. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that was the case certainly in the 80s. And the only way of doing an album, as you know, back then was to get a, a record company advance. Uh, so you then had the cash to go into a studio and to, to put the album down. But the price you had to pay for that, um, you know, and also managers had their say as well. Um, the price you had to pay really is that you have to buckle down and, and do a sound. Uh, and so, you know, we had our own to sound producing the REO Speedwagon stuff. Uh, and hard, I don't know. Um, but uh, and and um, and you know manipulated I think by by the business and, uh, and when we got to 1985 then we were sued by our ex manager and uh, for a lot of money uh, and that really kind of made us think well is this really worth doing you know and and uh, we we didn't break up as such but we just kind of laid low and let's just kind of have a rest and take a breather and. Uh, Hello. It's Mike again. It's, oh, hello, Mike. It's one of those days. <laughs> we we yeah, keep losing each other after here, every question. Yeah, I know. Well, well, we'll plot on and just you know make the best of it. So, yeah. how far did I get this time? <laughs> you were talking about laying low in '85 because of everything that was going on. I'm right. like, but what, you laid low for like 30 years. Uh, we, we well, we did. Yeah, I mean, you know, we the thing is, we we were pretty demoralised by that point because. I don't know if you got the bit about uh, the fact that we were sued yeah. by our manager for a lot of money. And um, and that kind of really took the wind out of our sails. And we, we, we just thought, you know, we, we don't know if this is really worth it. So we, we just kind of uh, kicked back for a while. And then, of course, other jobs came in. So I joined uh, the Macaulay Schenker group with Rocky. Um, Dennis was off doing Prey Mantis stuff. So we were kind of very much involved in other stuff at that point so um you know that's really why we, we kind of didn't do anything for such a long time and when you did you came back in a big way i mean you played a festival 
a brand new record, Second Nature, comes out. Really, I mean, Second Nature, is that stuff that was all written at that moment or that point in time of the band, or was it stuff that you had sitting around from back in the day after the first record that you just never got to release? Uh, half and half. That was pretty much 50% of each. Uh, there were some, some songs that, that didn't make it to the Hot Tonight album, which we loved, and we were a little bit um, disappointed that, that they'd never been recorded properly. So, you know, we thought, um, you know, we're being told by everybody after we did the, the Rockingham Festival, you know, you've got to do another album. And uh, so we thought, well, you know, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. And uh, so we took some of those old songs like um, uh, Give Me the Light and Prisoner and um, Heartbeat Radio, songs like this, which were old songs, which we thought would would be great to do again. Plus, we added a whole bunch of new songs to it to to uh, to fill out the album. Uh, so it's very much a, a kind of, I suppose, an experimental album to see if we could still work together and still produce the goods. And, and we were incredibly happy with it. And uh, that really kind of gave us a big boost as well when, when it came out so well. What's amazing is that I don't think most people would even know what songs, unless they heard them back in the day, were old or new because you seamlessly put them together in the same sort of vibe that, you know, the fine line hot sound. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we... Um... I think we've always had that sound. We've always had the, you know, the, the vocal harmonies and the guitar harmonies and and, uh, and the great songs. And uh, so, you know, we, we saw no reason really to change the the direction that we were um, that we were going in. Um, so I think that's why there's a kind of continuation from the old songs to the new songs. Also, I mean, you know, the kind of music that we loved and also the kind of music that was uh, coming back into vogue uh, was 80s rock. Um, you know, there was a big kind of resurgence of that. And uh, and for us, that was just very good timing. We're very lucky, I think, that this this whole uh, new interest in 80s rock coincided with exactly the time that we played the Rockingham Festival and decided to get the, the, the band up and running again. Uh, so I think that's, that's why, you know, we never kind of really changed in that sense. I feel, uh, just touching on the new album very quickly, I feel that... We've progressed uh, from Second Nature going to Reality of Miracles, but uh, certainly for Second Nature, it was almost as if we just kind of did that album in 1986. Very true. I mean, after the Rockingham Festival, when you decided to give it another go, I mean, did you look at it like Second Nature was going to be the band's swan song? You were going to like close out on a high note? Or were you looking at that as like a, a new beginning for the band? Uh, we, we didn't really know. I think it was, very, you know, the, the whole idea was to do the album and then just see how it went down. And if it went down like a, a lead balloon, then we'd probably just call it a day and just say, well, it was worth a try and it was good fun while we're doing it. Uh, if it got some really good reviews and people liked it, um, then we, you know, probably think about doing another one. And, and, you know, glad to say it was the latter of those two. We got some fa fantastic reviews for Second Nature, and a lot of people said, yeah, you know, this is really, really great stuff. And, you know, to be honest, we were having a ball. Uh, the difference between doing it now and doing an album back in the 80s was that we, we have control. So we don't, when we did Second Nature, we didn't have a manager, we didn't have a record company. I've got my own studio. So, you know, I could effectively finance the recording of the album. And um, so we had complete freedom to do it exactly the way that we wanted to and to make it exactly conform to the Lionheart sound. Um, so, yeah, we, we it was, as I say, a bit of an experiment. And we just kind of recorded the album, put it out, and we thought, well, let's see how this goes. And, uh, and it turned out really well. It, it really did. 
I mean, Steve, do you prefer the business model that's, you know, kind of in place today? Because I hear a lot of bands saying, you know, they miss the old days when, you know, they were getting these big record deals. But like you said earlier, you know, you have to, you know, kowtow to a lot of the record labels and what they want you to do. You kind of have to, mm. you know, compromise your morals. Where today maybe the money's not there and the record labels aren't king anymore, but you do have complete control over your music and your product. You know, so it's kind of a give and take. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, my, my own preference is for the current model. I, I like the potential of the current model. It's not working yet. Um, but when you compare it to how things were five, ten years ago, when everybody was just downloading music for free, uh, and there was no money involved in the music business, you know, everyone was saying, well, that's it. That's, that's going to be the death of the music business. Uh, it's just going to be a hobby business from this point onwards because no one can afford to live off it. Um, you know, so... You know, there's a lot of arguments go on about companies like Spotify, whether they're ripping artists off or whether they're not. Or, you know, they've, they've been non-profit for 10 years and now they're kind of, you know, but the managing director is a billionaire. So there's a lot of different arguments there, you know. But I think the, the whole idea of what's going on, I, I think, is great. And exactly as you say, um, you know, when I'm working in my studio, I mean, I've, the technology has come home. Um, it's enabled me to really equip my studio so that I can record albums uh, with absolute top quality. I mean, I've been produ producing and engineering for about 40 years, um, so experience kind of does count for it as well. Uh, but, you know, technology has provided a, at a low cost uh, the ability to, to record yourself at, at home, if you like, or at your home studio. And... Uh, and I really like that. And then you've got the social media where you can do your own PR and stuff. Um, so bands do have a, a absolute control over what they're doing. This is nothing against managers. And we, we have since uh, acquired a manager with Lionheart um, you know, because I think you need the right guy with the right connections and you know the right PR stuff and everything else in order if you want to kind of push it to the next level. Um, but certainly I think the, the whole idea of this new model is very, very good. And I think as it... Uh, progresses and hopefully musicians will start to be paid more money um, so they can get back to looking at doing it as a career uh, then I, I think this new model actually has real real potential yeah I, I agree I mean you're talking about being an engineer and involved in engineering for all these decades I mean did that make it easier for you because you were also behind the board to adapt all the new technology? Because a lot of artists, you know, just can't figure out the home studio stuff and all the technology <laughs> and all the changes that have come along in the last 30 or 40 years. They're still mm. used to recording mm. in analog and in the studio on reel-to-reel. Has that made it easier for mm. you, and do you adapt easily to the new changes that have come along? Uh, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a tech head, I have to say, and, and uh, I always have been. And, and I've, I started with my first studio well, I call it a studio in inverted commas, uh, back when I was about 16 years old and I had a tape recorder, a, a two-track tape recorder, and just bounced from one track to the other uh, and just add, add instruments. And since then, I've been in engineering. And um, I think there's a, there's a, a big um, problem in where, you know, a lot of people say to me, yeah, but, you know, anybody can, can do music these days because all you need to do is go out and buy a decent computer, uh, stick Cubase on it or Logic or whatever, you, you know, program you, you choose to use. Uh, and there you are. You can record albums. And that's absolutely, most definitely not the case. Um, that would be like saying, 
you know, okay, I'm giving you, um, you know, one-on-one studios in LA, go in and make your album. You know, you'd sit there, you'd look at this desk, you think, where on earth do I begin? And, and it's exactly the same with, um, with computer-based um, doors, uh, digital audio workstations. You know, the, actually all the technologies in there, you've got all the compressors, the reverbs, the limiters, the, you know, everything that you, that you could possibly want in there. But if you don't know how to use them, you won't come out with, a, with good music. So you can acquire the equipment, but there's still absolutely no substitute for experience. And, you know, some of the best records I listen to these days um, are all produced uh, by engineer or the sounds or always created by engineers who have been in the business for like 40 years. And, um, you know, so the, the, the really, I love it personally because I have done my groundwork and I have learned how to engineer uh, and suddenly I've got everything that I used to have in a big analog studio. I've got on my, my desk uh, and I can do whatever I like. I can record any way I want to and come up with exactly the sounds that, uh, that I'm looking for. So I'm, I'm a very, very happy bunny with all the new technology. Yes. Oh yeah. You know what you just said is so true because it has become very affordable and very easy to do on your own, but without the right person helming it or being behind that board, I've heard mm. a lot of albums where, you know, I'm like the songs were so great and the quality of it, the production of it was so horrible. Mm. And these artists are doing mm. it themselves in their house. And I'm like, I know you have to save money today. It's all about that because of what's going on. But you know, you really might not want to be behind that board if you don't know what you're doing because you've taken a great song mm-hmm. and a great album and kind of ruined it with a bad production and a bad mix. <laughs> it's just, I'm like, oh my yeah. God, this album really could have been incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the thing. I think you have to understand where your limits are. And if you're not the best engineer, then I think you should hand the, the control over to someone that really knows what they're doing because, as you say, I mean, you know, getting great songs and great performances from the, the musicians is one thing. But getting it all down onto tape or, you know, whatever the digital equivalent of tape is, um, hard drive, you know, getting it all down and then mixing it correctly is, uh, is a skill. And it's a skill acquired over many, many years. And there's no shortcut to that. That's true. I mean, see, with everything going on in the world right now, most bands are kind of down, you know, uh, as far as live performances go or getting out there. I mean, you know, so what do you do during this downtime? I mean, you just focus on, like, you know, the recording process, being in the studio, working on music for yourself and other bands? Uh, exactly. Um, th- that's exactly what I do. And, and obviously, um, you know, but, but with Michael Schenker Fest earlier this year, we had tours of Europe and Japan uh, just cancelled. And um, there's, you know, other bands that I've been playing with where we have absolutely no gigs whatsoever. So it's been a hard year for everybody. Uh, so I've concentrated. I mean, I love, there's nothing I like better than sitting in my studio writing songs and, and recording them. And um, I've just got together with, with uh, a few different people um, in the business. Uh, I'm doing quite a bit of mixing work and mastering work. And uh, I've got together uh, with a, a singer and we're putting an album together. So I'm just kind of, you know, taking this opportunity uh, during this this downtime, if you like, um, just to concentrate on the the recording side of things, which is which is great. I mean, I wouldn't like to feel that I have to do this for too long without going back out on the road again, because obviously every musician loves going out and playing live to, to live audiences. But while this is enforced, then. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of getting involved in in, uh, in in doing different things in the studio. But one of the big advantages that COVID did have for Lionheart 
uh, was I was finding it very, very difficult over the last two years to actually find the time to sit down and finish the Lionheart album. And when COVID came along in March and everything was cancelled, uh, I had all the time in the world to sit down and finish the album. So uh, I think without COVID, um, the reality of miracles wouldn't have yet come out. I think that would still be on my hard drive. Wow. So I, I guess something good, something good came out of something really bad, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I keep telling myself that. <laughs> so, I mean, so where do we go from here with Lionheart? I mean, you know, MSG will get back out on the road again, you know, sooner or later. Hopefully, you know, sooner than later. But 2001 looks like where everybody's waiting for. I mean, so do you think mm-hmm. you're going to be able to get Lionheart out on tour? Is it possible at this point in time with everybody's schedule and everybody busy with other things also? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. Yeah, we signed with a, a booking agency as well. I mean, that was obviously nothing's happened with that yet because we signed with, with them at the beginning of the year. And uh, then immediately COVID came along, so that put a, a pay to that. So we, we obviously would love to get out when everybody else can uh, and start doing gigs again. A uh, slight problem is obviously that things like festivals, which have been cancelled from this year, um, they're just shifting them to next year, to, to 2021, with the same lineups. Yeah. There's no spaces left on any of the festivals unless bands really can't do it and they drop out and they're looking for a re- replacement. But generally, most of the festivals, there's, there's, you'd, you know, there's no possibility of getting on any of them until 2022. Um, but, you know, I think we've, we've had offers from, from Spain and, you know, uh, UK um, clubs and things that, you know, we, we basically said to them, as soon as we can, yes, let's talk and we'll, we'll get on the case. So we'd love to get out there again and, and, and tour, of course. Is that the band's primary focus as far as playing live goals is trying to get onto the festival circuit? Because that's what most bands do. They don't really want to go to the clubs anymore. They'd rather just play the festivals and do these big one-off shows and they come home afterwards. Yeah, I mean, festivals are great. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're very well organized. You're playing to a very large audience um, and generally they're quite well paid. So, you know, I think you can see why bands like to do festivals. If you set up a merch stall, then you can, you know, shift a few records and T-shirts and stuff. Um, you know, if you're doing the more club size gigs, then obviously it's only really worth it in terms of, you know, flying people around and stuff. Um, if you can kind of do maybe like, you know, a, a two weeks minimum. But, you know, I guess we'd be happy with that. But there is something about doing festivals which... Um, which is great. I mean, it's just the festival atmosphere, I think, as well. That you know, everybody loves that festival atmosphere, and there's nearly always bands playing that you want to go and see as well. So it's you know, all in all, festivals are, are, are great, and you know, I, I think that's what we were kind of looking to do more than anything else. True. I mean, you know, you've been out on the road your whole life playing and performing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the downtime is probably the worst time for a musician. But when you go back out on the road, do you ever say to yourself, I've been waiting for this to happen. I can't wait. We're finally out there playing. How long does it take before you say, God, I wish I was back home again? Oh, that is, I love home. Um, as soon as I go out on tour, I want to come home again. <laughs> but, then, but then as soon as you hit the stage, then all of that goes out the window and, and you just... You know, you you think to yourself, this is what it's all about. But then you get back to the mundane stuff like getting in a tour bus and traveling overnight and, um, you know, checking into hotels late and then you're straight down to sound check and all the routine routine stuff. You know, I I generally kind of tend to think I'd love to be home and just, you know, relaxing and just doing doing what, what I like doing. 
but it's when you get out on stage, then that's that's what makes it all worth it. True, because that's all people see is they see you up on stage for 90 minutes and they're like, mm. wow, this is like, you know, a dream. But they don't see you piling into a van or a bus with a dozen other people traveling for hours yeah. and hours and hours, going to hotels, yeah. eating crappy food. Yeah. They don't see that part of it. They just see like the glamorous part up on stage. Oh, it's shit. It really, I mean, you know, to, to, it, it's, a, it's a young man's life. It really is. You know, I mean, the younger you are, the more you put up with this, with this stuff, you know. But as you get older and you start to like your home comforts, uh, which I do, um, it's, it's hard. You know, it's, you don't sleep properly, you don't eat properly, and you're, you're with the same people all the time. And if you haven't had a decent night's sleep, then you get a bit racky with each other. Although I have to say, uh, you know, that with the, the bands I'm in at the moment, we all get on absolutely great. Uh, and uh, I, I, I love the guys and I love their company, both in Schenkerfest and in Lionheart. So haven't got a problem there. Everyone's left their egos behind, you know, years ago. Uh, so that side of it's not a problem anymore. But, you know, the, the, the horrible, the bad food and the lack of sleep, uh, it does catch up with you after a while. But as I say, getting out on that stage, all worth it. I can imagine. Hey, Steve, I'm not going to keep you. I appreciate you talking to me today. The reality of miracles. What an amazing job. I hope we don't have to wait for another pandemic to get a follow-up to this record. So I hope you guys get on that and give us one in another year or so. I hope. Yeah, I, I hope so too. I mean, I think you know we, the ball is well and truly rolling now, and I think we're just going to carry on. Certainly while COVID is happening, we're looking at starting to get some songs together already for the next album so we can get a big head start. So you know, hopefully it won't be another two or three years before the next album comes out. And uh, I've, I've got some great ideas for the, the follow-up album, the next album that's coming out, uh, how we can progress the sound even more. So I'm, I'm very, very excited about the future for Lionheart. Uh, and so am I, Steve. I've been a big fan for a lot of decades. Just keep this thing going for as long as you can. You bet, Mike. All right. You take care, my friend. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. And great talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. See you.
your brand new Lionheart. They did such a great job on this record. Go and pick it up. Thine is the kingdom. All right, we're going to wrap it up here tonight with one more song. We're going to close it out with the Rods Violation. Hey, if you can, tune in next week. I know a lot of you people do every week. If you're not listening live, you're listening to the podcast. I do appreciate that. But next week is it. No more guests on the show. It's just going to be you and me doing a lot of chit-chatting and talking about music and metal and anything else about two. Maybe we'll do a whole three-hour show next week. Who knows? But it'll be our last live show, so join in if you can. If not, catch the replays later. All right, let's wrap it up here tonight with the Rods. Take care, everybody. Have a good night, and I'll see you next week. And that's the last time I'm going to say that. Good night, everyone.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.